there's mornings I wake up trying to keep myself unbelievably positive and focused on the on the chore and there's moments I wake up and I just feel like breaking down in tears and thinking is everything I've worked for and strived for um, now gone. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Optimism is a powerful trait. It can drive one to success. It can clear clouds of self-doubt. It can calm and influence those around you. But a pandemic can impact even the most optimistic person. Shane Delia is the owner of the Delia Group, known for Maha Restaurant and Maha Bar, and more recently, thanks to the pandemic, Providor. Shane, you're a pretty positive, upbeat, optimistic person. How are you feeling at the moment with all the changes that have just happened again in Victoria? Um, I, I continue to stay positive. I mean, I I think the only thing that's um, I, I'm I'm concerned about are the things that are outside of my control. And if they're outside of your control, well, there's nothing you can do about it. So I try not to focus on them. To be honest, I mean, um, I'm not a doomsdayer, and I'm I'm, I'm not I'm not. I, I don't think there's a cure and there's and I don't think we're ever going to be in a position where we're not living with this thing, but we've been living with stuff for a long time and we always seem to find a way. So I see this as a really great chance to to, to refocus and, um, and, and, and to unshackle yourself from the things that have been restricting us for years and, and maybe, you know, reposition our goals and ambitions. What are some of those things that uh, you said things that are restricting, been restricting you for years or, you know, the industry for years? What are some of those things that you think can be changed now? Uh, I think there's lots of things. I think personally, there's, I mean, if you look at the personal parallel first, it's just, you know, maybe it's expectations placed on yourself in regards to what success looks like, um, what normality looks like, um, what equality looks like, what, you know, a, a work week looks like. So, I mean, all those, I suppose, personal you know, sort of limits or ambitions that we put on ourselves. You know, if you'd spoke to me six months ago, what a success looks like, it would look like paying down the majority of my loans, you know, in, in, in the next 18 months, like we were on track to do. It's building that house that I've been working for the last 20 plus years to get to a position where I can build that house. It's sending my kids to the school I wanted to send them to. But but what's the motivation behind all those things is it greed? Is it keeping up with the Joneses? Is it because you're putting so much expectation on yourself? I mean, and are then those things shackling you into, uh, 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 I suppose, a, uh, a self-destructive lifestyle that you just get trapped up in. So, I mean, there's all those self, you know, preservation uh, things that you can look at and, and start to go, do I actually need this shit? Or is this just pressure I'm putting on myself? Um, because then that impacts your business decisions, you know. Like, so I mean, if you look at your business, business, I mean, you talk about I talk about resetting and 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 recalibrating there, and it's it's things like you know, it's a time for government to relook at the way we do things, and why do we do it? Have we been so long trying to, you know, sac- uh, uh, justify and appease the needs of the minority when we're forgetting about the majority? Um, is it is it a time for reform for you know, for for employee employer reform, where there's a, you know, because there's been angst there in the in the last you know five years or so, is it a chance to go? Let's clear the slate. Let's fucking silence the the noise of the union. Let's silence the noise of the government. What do we both want? Because we're the ones suffering, the employee and the employer. How do we find middle ground where we can both prosper? 
Um, and from a government perspective, it's about reform in regards to legislation, in tax legislation, and 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 really, if they if they really do want to see the economy prop itself up, it, it enable us to do that. Give us some give us some mechanisms where we can where we can actually be a productive you know part of society, and we can employ more people, create opportunity, and and, and stimulate the economy. You've uh, always been a very optimistic person, and but the pandemic sort of landed, and you you know would have had question marks about the uncertainty of the future of your restaurants at some stage. What, what was that period like for you? Oh, I mean, it's it's dark because there's emotional connection. I mean, I'm sitting in the dining room now, um, and it's. And I mean, I'm. <laughs> I tried to be the most one of the most. Um, critical people of our own brands. But I think Maha as a dining room is one of the most beautiful dining rooms in the, in the country. It's, it's stunning. And, you know, and I'm sitting here now and I'm, I'm seeing it being transformed over the last 15, 16 weeks to a production facility into a dining room again. I mean, we're, we're servicing customers again and it's, it's beautiful. But um, I suppose what the period was like, I mean, when we first had the pandemic hit, I mean, it's it's it was devastating. I mean, uh, I, I try to be as strong as I can, but I mean, I'm I'm only human. I'm only a man. I mean, I've I mean, I've I've battled with mental illness my whole life. I've got attention deficiency disorder. I seek help for that, um, and all those things are magnified when you're under emotional and financial pressure. So, um, it, there's mornings I wake up trying to keep myself unbelievably positive and focused on the on the chore, and there's moments I wake up and I just feel like breaking down in tears and thinking, is everything I've worked for and strived for um, now gone, but that, that's an emotional connection. I mean, that's, that's a, that's what we were talking about earlier. That's, that's about why do I actually feel this emotional connection to this? Is it because I am now going to be broken, homeless and destitute? Well, well, no, that's not going to happen, but it's the emotional connection with these things that we've worked so hard for that you may lose, but life's about loss. Yeah. Everything you have, you lose. Um, it's whether if you want to, you know, focus on, on, on the beauty that can come out of that, that, that emotion. I mean, I've established some beautiful relationships with people through this hard time. And, and it's also put a, a spotlight on people who I thought were pure and genuine and, and showed me that maybe they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> how, how does that make you feel through this time? Has, has it changed you this period of time? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, 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 has it changed me? No, I'm, I'm, I'm the same person. I'm I'm just as resilient as I've always been. Um, I'm just as hopeful as I've always been. Um, I'm not going to let doom and gloom and propaganda and bad, you know, um, I suppose political decisions inhibit me from being who I am. Um, if anything, it's it's probably strengthened my resolve. And, and, and justified, you know, that maybe, you know, some of my positions, whether they've been hard-nosed positions that I've taken in the past, are actually the right decisions. Um, and it's made me trust myself a little bit more because I think that every time I doubt myself and I try to do something that, oh, you know, um, this person says maybe I shouldn't, it, it never works. So I, I just need to follow my own heart a little bit more, I think, and I think this time's given me a great opportunity to do that. A little earlier, you sort of said, you know, you've seen the dining room, you know, shift to a production facility and back to a dining room. Can you take us through that sort of production model that you created and also the launch of Provador, which includes many amazing re uh, restaurants in Melbourne as well? Yeah. I mean, but we closed Maha and all of our restaurants 
before anybody else did in in Victoria. You know, so we, I mean, I worked very closely with the um, the Grand Prix Corporation, and I was there the morning of the, the cancellation of the race. Um, and I quickly got out of the track because they were about to lock it down. And I went back to our head office and said, "Okay, shit's about to get real. This is no longer something that's happening in China that we're talking about over here. Um, this is now an Australian problem, and I have to make some decisions." based on what's in the best interest of my staff and my family and my businesses before the government just do what they think's necessary. So we came back. Um, I looked at our finances with our, with our accounts team and worked out. I kind of thought in my gut that government are going to kind of probably shut this thing down for about three to four weeks and they probably should have just gone crunch straight away and shut the country down um, and really enforced a f- really sh- like iron grip lockdown. But they didn't. They piss farted around and – and then things start to get out of control, and you know, then you have bad governance, which is where, to, where we're led to today. But um, um, I thought, okay, well, I can't wait for them, so I'm going to do it. So we did it, and we thought we could probably withhold, you know, weather the storm for about five to eight weeks. And in that time, the government then decided to shut it down, so it sort of took the took the you know, pressure off me. But from five to six weeks, it looked like we were going to be closed for a lot longer, which we have been. And I said, well, we need to find some revenue. Maha's got a pretty good following and a good database. I mean, we've got 190 plus thousand people in our database. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's pretty strong. I mean, it's, it's, it's good because people connect, we connect with them and we run, we run a traditional business, not in a traditional business mentality. I mean, a lot of restaurateurs, they know who their customers are as in they, they know Johnny, Johnny's wife is Lucy, Lucy's kids' names are, you know, Jack and Fred <laughs> and he works for this person and they come into the restaurant and they eat on, you know, they love, a bottle of Bolly, and they know those details, but they haven't got a bloody clue about the email address or where they, where else they dine, where they live, or what they do for a job. So um, we are interested in both sides. So we've grown that over the last thirteen years. So we've actually got people to talk to. Um, and we so we launched Mahago, which is a, a, a at home delivery service. Um, I've reached out to some of our industry people. Um, is in our hosp- um, fruit and veg guys at Melbourne Fresh, who have predominantly are fruit and veg guys, but their back end of their res- of their business is logistics. And uh, I realised that hot food, as in you know, cook now, eat now, is, wasn't going to be the way. It's a it's a stopgap, and I'm not interested in stopgaps. I'm interested in solutions. Um, so we said, okay, well, if we're going to do it, what do we want to re-enter the market with? And it was finish at home, you know, three quarter cooked meals. Um, we we built a a pretty cost efficient Shopify uh, front end. We integrated it with a logistics partner um, on the back end, and it went bang like like unbelievably well. You know, we plugged it into our database and they d- devoured it and supported us. Um, the most successful business I've ever been in. It was unbelievable. Wow. Um, yeah, it's just mind-boggling. The, the, the way that the public got behind us was, was crazy. Um, and it made me realize that this is probably not just a product that's a stopgap, but this is something that people want. Um, and if they want it from me, then they're probably going to want it from my fellow hospitality professionals. So how can I provide a service to them where they can get their product out to a huge huge network of people throughout Victoria, um, so they can survive. And it's it's it's. I mean, I'm not I'm not Mother Teresa. I mean, I've done more bad than good in my life. But um, but I um I do care for the industry, and I mean, I, I believe that you need a strong league, like in a you know in in, in the EPL or in the AFL or whatever you follow. 
If yeah. you don't have a strong league, it's a shit game to watch. Um, so I need all the restaurants to be doing well for us to have an industry. So I thought, well, I'll be really transparent. We'll, we'll set up a we'll set up a platform. We called it Provador. Um, I we've educated the other restaurants on how to prepare this type this new type of cuisine. Um, so what sort of uh, restaurants are we talking about? Who's involved with Provador? Well, I mean, we're a premium restaurant platform, so we're not people have you know sort of teed us off against you know the the, the traditional deliver you know delivery platforms like Uber and Deliveroo and but that's not what we do. We're not we're not pitched at takeaway restaurants. These are premium restaurants with brand integrity who want to ensure that the user experience is maintained, and that's the core objective of, of the platform. So um, we're talking to brands like you know Supernormal and Cumulus. Um, Estelle, Flower Drum, Movida. Wow. Jeez, um, who else have we got? Um, um, Sunda, Maha. Oh, I mean, it goes on. There's, we, we signed up. We've got David's from Paran coming on board. We've got um, Lucy Liu and Philippe Michel and Ginger Boy and uh, Entrecot. I mean, there's, there's, we've been overrun with requests to join. So It sounds like a copy of the Good Food Guide. Yeah, pretty much is. <laughs> like it's it's like it's been great because being in Melbourne, obviously, this is my stomping ground, and you know I know these people and and, and I respect them and I trust and I trust them and I think that they trust me. That's um, that's why they're they're open to I suppose me being involved to help deliver you know their restaurant brands. What's been some of the challenges involved because this sort of model is very different to just running an everyday restaurant. Could you could you compare the business models and what what the challenges have been? Oh, there's a bucket load of challenges. I mean, this isn't restaurants. I mean, so I mean, if you think about um, what I'm doing now with my Provador hat on, I mean, I'm, this isn't a hospitality role. This is a, a marketing and logistics business. So we're talk, we're talking about um, how do we market the brand? How do we get exposure? How do we get more eyeballs? How do we how do we um, uh, target our message? How do we use pixels and cookies and 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 and, and, and Google targeted marketing and strategy and i mean it's it's massive um how do you do that and maintain and not blow out the costs um how do you raise capital to do it i mean i'm solely funding it um you know then there's the logistics part how do you get you know economies of scale with with delivery density how do you even understand what that means you know um you know how does how does this become a certified business model where it's where it's you know trackable and um, refrigerated and I mean what's all the leg- legalities around it I mean you're, you're talking about a multi-seller platform that can have a, a huge amount of traffic come through it how do you how do you plug in merchant facilities in that and and how do you even find a, a, a platform that can do that I mean it's there's it's it's mind-boggling from if you think about from a hospitality point of view to then shift and start to think okay well I'm no longer a hospital guy I'm a tech guy now how do I make this happen and from a you know from a caveman like me who finds it hard to turn his phone on most mornings it's it's been a it's been a challenge um but from a hospitality um, standpoint um it's it's a big shift and, and that's why we kind of focus on restaurants with a brand because i mean whether it's wrong or right i look at these brands as aspirational brands and you you'd assume that that these guys have some kind of a sophisticated business behind them where they've got people and processes and you're agile enough to be able to flex so now's not a time to dig your head in the sand and think okay traditional business will come back and we'll be right again it's it's bullshit it's it's not going to just happen like that it's it's a it's a time to 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 really assess 
Um, so some of the challenges have been how do we say to restaurants, this isn't just a plug and play where you plug in your hot food into a takeaway container and we deliver it. You Now you have to worry about packing runs and packaging and will your food actually translate well on, in this medium and how do you use the back end of Provador to make sure you've got enough stock to fulfill the orders. And I mean, so, so there is a few things to get your head around. So it's not just about uh, people applying to be a part of Provador and yeah, they've got a cool brand and we accept them. It's, it's can they actually do the job? Um, and then we consider taking them on board because we don't want to pop, we don't want to pollute the population either. We want to make sure we've got a really strong network of people who are all mutually invested. You know, this business Provador came about because of a pandemic, but is it is it a model that you've ever considered before? And is it something you think is is going to continue beyond the pandemic when restaurants are open fully again? Uh, and first question is it something I considered? No, it's not something I considered. I mean. We we I have got other I've got other businesses like at Biggie Smalls where we've done the traditional Uber plug in and sort of go and that and that never worked and and um, it, I don't think it can work, um, but is it something that's going to stick around? Hundred percent. I mean the, the the market's devouring it and it's not. It, it, I mean I, I've done a, a shitload of things in my career and um, I think one of the is from a hospitality standpoint when when we offer when we go to a a charity event and we put something up on the auction block and it's chef come to your house to cook a, an event, um, those things go for tens of thousands of dollars. Now, customers have always wanted those in-home experiences, but they've been out of reach. They're so expensive. I know I know, I know. for us in our restaurant, people are always asking, oh, but can we get a, a small function at home? And you cost it up and it's like 20 grand and they're like, oh, shit, can't do that. But what we've produced now is a really cheap and affordable, efficient way for people to have the restaurant brands that they know and love at home. So it's going to be around for a long time because it's not actually expensive. Like I had a, an event last week at home where I was just cooking lunch for my family and I, and I used Scotty's picket stuff at Estelle. Now, first of all, I can't cook like Scotty. I mean, he's a brilliant cook. Um, but when I ordered all the food and I actually looked what was out on the table, I mean, there was a lot more value there from what the raw cost would have been if I had to go to the supermarket and buy it. Um, plus... He'd done all the bloody hard work. I mean, everything was cooked. I just had to cook the pork belly, warm up some sauces, assemble a couple of things, and within 40 minutes, I was eating, um, as opposed to the days I would have had to spend making all those sauces and going to the supermarket and prepping that veg and slowly roasting the chicken and all of this crap that I just can't be bothered about doing at home. Um, Scotty done it for me, and it was delivered to my house You know, the next day. How did you get started in the industry? Well, when I got let out of jail, it was either that or back on the production line. So, no, I'm joking. No. Oh, that was no. like, I'm up for that story. Um, how did I get started? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, look, I, I, I'm a sucker. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a hospitality lifer. I mean, I wanted to be in hospitality from the time I was about 13 or 14. I mean, I, I loved cooking and I wasn't good at anything else and – the it was either automotives. I mean, I was you know I've got my my uncles are big rockabilly superstars who build hot rods and all that kind of stuff. So it was either you know playing double bass in a rockabilly band, building you know H Humanaros my whole life, or or I loved cooking. So I kind of tried my hand at all of it, and cooking was the only thing that I kind of was okay at. Um, and I fell in love with it, mate. I fell in love with the. The romance, the pressure, the rock and roll, the, the, the creativity, the camaraderie, the hierarchy, 
um, the whole lot. I just got I just got sucked in, and um, and I've been on that high ever since. And uh, and I think that um, our industry still possesses some tame version of that somewhere, um, but the world and the industry continues to to, to change and. The, the, the purity, whether it's whether it's sustainable or not, but that that passion and fire that was there is no longer burning as bright. Um, but I'm still in love with the romance of it. Can you tell us a little bit about your food and some of the history uh, behind it? Because it's pretty colourful and vibrant and fragrant, um, incredible food. Um, but there's always stories behind food, and particularly your food. That's nice that you say that, mate. I mean, I've been trying to get some praise from you for a long time. So fuck all I have to do is come on your show and I'll get some praise. That's all. That's awesome. I'm gonna. Okay, I want to get a copy of this. This is great. Um, wow. Um, shit. Um, I have to take a moment. Hang on. Um, my food. I mean, I I started I started cooking in the in the early '90s, and it was all about other British flavors or French, European, um, and I got really. St- like you know, I grew up in the era of you know Marco Pierre White being all there was, and the and, and the and and the Rue brothers, and you know Ducasse, and all these guys, and um, so I was very much into the classics, you know, and and I spent the the, the first half of my career cooking that food and um, loved it, but I quickly got to a point where I'd been cooking since I was sixteen, and I was now twenty seven, um, and I felt burnt. And like I'd, I mean, whether I'm blowing my own horn or not, but I kind of thought I'd achieved more than I ever would have achieved and probably should have achieved. And I was just engaged and thought, fuck, I don't know if I want this anymore. You know, like it's burning me out. I'm burning the candle at both ends. I'm just about to get married. And my wife's not a hospo wife. So I'm thinking, maybe I'm still young enough. Maybe I can go back and do another trade. You know, it was always going to be a trade for me. Um, and I, I was only young, man. I was 27. I thought, oh, I can do that again. I mean, I can do this. So we got engaged and I was still contemplating. I, I resigned from my job. I was I was the exec chef at Shadow Yearing out in the Arrow Valley. And um, my wife and I went on our honeymoon and we went traveling around the Middle East. And I just went, this is what I love about food. And this is what speaks to me about sort of, I mean, I'm Maltese heritage, but, you know, our food descends from and our culture descends from the Phoenicians and there's a big sort of Middle Eastern heartbeat in, 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 in the Maltese world. My wife's Lebanese as well, so spending a bit of time just reconnecting with family, I've gone, this is what I love and I fell in love with food again and I really started to explore what my, I suppose, culinary ancestry was and and started to connect with that and decided that this was what I wanted to do um, moving forward and you know, I've just really tried to own that space um, we don't do traditional Middle Eastern food. I mean, I think that there's a lot better traditional Middle Eastern chefs out there than me. I don't, don't profess to know anything. But um, I do love it and I do um, try to learn and I'm constantly learning and trying to just create big flavors. I mean, at the end of the day, if it's not tasty, I'm not interested. I mean, subtlety is nice, but you always remember some the, 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 the outspoken person in the room that's making the most noise and I think that's our food. Well, you just sort of talked about big flavors. What what are some of the dishes that make you really happy to cook and eat? Um, something to cook. I mean, uh, 
uh, it's it's hard. It, it's it's hard. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, we 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 change our menus so frequently that um, it's 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 ever evolving. I mean, I, at the moment, you know, we've just reopened the doors at Maha. I mean, this is our third night, um, and I'm enjoying putting up those classic dishes that people love about us. You know, our slow roasted lamb shoulder and our kingfish that's cured in chamen but it's it's i suppose it's the reinvention of those dishes i mean we don't serve it now the same way we did 10 years ago you know now we're seasoning it a little bit different we've we've, we've altered the sauce we're garnishing a little bit different so it's i suppose it's seeing the evolution of those dishes and 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 our old customers reconnect with them um is always awesome um but what am I enjoying eating? I mean, to be honest, I've, I've gone on a bit of a, a health kick. Um, <laughs> That's the opposite to everyone in the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, leading up into the pandemic, I'd, I'd, I'd lost like 13 kilos um, because I was just fat and lazy and, you know, getting to that point of unhappiness again um, because, you know, we all go through ups and downs and we like to blame everybody else for the position that we're in. But a lot of the time, things are in our control, which is that we're not honest or strong enough to admit it and take control of it. And um, I'd been in that position before where, you know, you're overweight, depressed, probably drinking too much and everything else. And and you just start to let that shit get out of control and then it starts to eat you away. So I could see myself getting back into that spiral and I went, no, nah, this is bullshit. I've got too much to lose now. I've got kids. I've got a wife. I've got a, a, a public profile. I've got all of this crap. Um, I need to get myself in order. So I got myself in order and I'm I'm still sort of on that now, so I've been eating. I've been eating. It's not even about food. I've been eating two thousand calories a day, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's and it, and it consists of poached chicken, vegetables, and rice most days. But um, but I, you know, I love food, and the thing is, that I'm 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 an all or nothing, and, and I can't have a glass of wine. I have a bottle of wine, and if I'm going to have dinner, I'm having fucking dinner. I'm not having you know like an entree and then I'm done. So um, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm looking forward to my next night out. Well, mate, I can definitely resonate with all of that. Oh, it's certainly the last bit about um, <laughs> if I'm if I'm in for dinner, it's it, I want to eat everything. Um, well, let's talk, talk about Maha. What you, earlier you were saying, you know, like there's this thought that we're just going to jump back into the sort of restaurant, normal restaurant sort of models and and move forward. But you you, you don't think that's the case. What what's happening with your restaurant, and how do you see that next six months for that? No, I don't think that's the case because it, it, I think, I mean, um, Maha's right in the guts of the CBD, all right? And now, even though tonight we're full and tomorrow we're full and the rest of the week we're full, which is so hopeful. And I mean, I love being in the restaurant and seeing people here. I mean, I love it. But we, we've got a way, you know, it's like we're um, we're in a, an abusive relationship in, in, in hospitality. We're in, we're in this relationship where we're beaten down every day. And then the one day that we're not beaten down, we just reflect on how great our marriage is. It, it's not that great. You know, just because today was good doesn't mean yesterday was good and tomorrow's not going to be great either. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, I sit there and look, okay, well, we're a traditional business that runs seven days a week, lunch, lunch and dinner, okay? And that's our normality. Um, now we're at a five-day-a-week operation where we're just doing dinners Tuesday to Saturday. Now, um, so... But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but it's not normal. What normality was is, is is being the you know the hamster on the wheel running around chasing our tail. Um, but this way, um, there's an old saying. I think what is it? It's 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 revenue. Um, um, re- revenue's vanity, margin is sanity. <laughs> um, and and that's kind of the ethos I'm I'm hoping the new world embraces because there's no use turning over eight 
nine, ten million dollars to make ten, thirteen percent and go insane and be, you know, risking your neck at every turn with compliance and everything else. I prefer to turn over seven and make twenty percent and sleep at night. So um, I don't know if things will go back to the way they were. I don't necessarily want things to go back to the way they were. Um, but, you know, I also look around what's happening around me. I walked, like it was eerie today. Like I, I stepped outside, don't tell my personal trainer, but I needed a sugar fix and I'm a, 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 I'm a sucker for a Kit Kat. So I, I walked out to 7-Eleven and bought a big fat Kit Kat and I stood on the corner of Flinders Lane and Queen Street and it was eerie, mate. Like silence, nobody. And this was at one one thirty. Like I'm sitting there going, like you could you could shoot a shotgun down the street and no one would even fucking flinch. I'm like, this is like, so how can we expect just that people are just going to start populating the CBD again and lunch is going to come back? I mean, this year is going to be scary. You know, we do a shit ton of revenue from November to December in for lunches, corporate functions, all that kind of. It's not going to be here this year. So how does restaurants survive? So how, how do you how do you how do you pay your staff what you need to pay them? How do you keep them employed? Um, you know how, how does that happen? So once the government decide to stop pimp, you know, propping us up with with JobKeeper, which is you know essential, um, there is going to be a shit ton of pain. That, that that's why opportunities like Providor for me are so relevant because it's not the solution. But it's definitely it's definitely an opportunity to help people keep moving forward. Um, you know, I don't see anybody else sticking their head up with you know any other solutions. So I mean, I'm going to keep riding that horse until it falls, until the legs fall off. <laughs> How are you feeling about your industry that you know has been part of the majority of your life now, and and the future of it? Uh, I'm I'm worried for it, um, and 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 I'm excited. I mean, I'm worried because. Uh, I'm not. I'm nothing special, mate. I mean, I'm, I'm uneducated. I left school at a young age, and I'm just a, a dumb chef. Yeah, I mean, I'm nothing special, but but I try new things, and I've surrounded myself with a network of people who are unbelievably talented and leaders in their field, who are with, who are not, who are who are not hospitality people. So I'm surrounded by, you know, positivity and and, and new opportunity. Um, but for those who aren't, who are traditional hospitality, you know, bread and butter, mum and pop shops. How, how do you see, how do you find your way through this? Like where is the light going to come from? How are they going to transform and turn themselves into something new? Um, I, I don't know, mate. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. Um, and without sounding, I mean, and it's the worst probably thing to say because you're talking about people and people forget that when they make just sort of brushstroke comments that you're talking about through that brushstroke you're talking about people and lives and emotions and savings and 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 sacrifice but you know sometimes big changes like this do actually this is i mean i'm conflicted by saying it but i mean almost clears the dead weight you know it almost culls you know things that were inhibiting growth and it's like i suppose if you look at you know your garden and you've got overgrown trees that are just strangling the roses you know you clean out the weeds the roses grow and the garden looks prettier i mean it's probably you know it's probably not the right way to put it but if you look at the industry 
there's a lot of things that are strangling it. I mean, we've got a shortage of customers, we've got a shortage of staff, we've got a um, you know a shortage of revenue. Um, so if there was less venues, if there was less uncompliance within the industry because of operators who are operating you know fraudulently, um, things could probably be better. You know, it would actually probably grow a bit harder. People would be in better jobs. People could actually have succession plans within those jobs. Employers could actually spend time training and employing people. So the positivity I see is that there may be some great opportunity in the stronger entities. But the, the sad thing is that some of the weaker ones may be the one that the people that fall on, the, on, on their sword. I think you raised some really valid points and it's, you know, issues that the hospitality sector has had ongoing, which, you know, skill shortages, too many restaurants, um, you know, consumers not paying enough money for um, what they're receiving. And, you know, maybe this is, as you sort of say, this is a time of change for all of that. You You know, the reason why consumers don't pay enough for food, it's not because they don't want to. It's because you don't need any quality really accreditation or anything to become a restaurant owner you know you go do your HACCP stuff and whatever else and you just you're a good cook you've got a passion you've got some money someone backing you and you open a restaurant and you work your ass off and you do it you know you work with a small team and you no one really gets paid and and you can afford to sell your food cheap because the operating costs are low so all that does is hold back the industry because the big boys or the bigger operators who employ more people who are compliant can't charge what they need to charge because they're continually being undercut by the newbies. So it creates an unbalanced field where, where instead of the top tier competing with the top tier, the top tier can, can increasingly getting pulled down by these new people coming up that aren't actually charging what they should be charging because they can't compete on fit out and they can't compete on marketing and they can't compete on reach. So they compete on price. And the consumer will go, well, why would I go to View de Monde when I can go to Ides? And Ides is brilliant. And I love Pete. And I think they're doing a great job. But they don't charge what View de Monde charges, but they probably should. You know what I mean? So if there needs to be more balance in the marketplace where people are charging, where restaurateurs are charging a fair and reasonable price for their product that's actually sustainable where the industry can survive because if we're continually undercutting each other, I mean, it's just going to, it's, 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 well, we've seen what happens. I mean, restaurants close, people, staff don't get paid and, you know, and then, then, you know, the restaurateur is the one holding the bag. A little earlier, you said you're actually quite excited about the opportunities that the future may hold. What, what, what what do you think are the opportunities moving forward? I think the opportunities are that we, that, that we can reclaim a little bit of that, um, we can reclaim a bit of that uh, professionalism and, and, and hope and growth within the industry that we saw, um, sustainable growth, I mean, that we saw sort of, you know, in the early thousands, the late 90s, where you actually did like an apprenticeship, like a real apprenticeship, because you were working, you know, I did my apprenticeship in hotels, you know, like you do it in a hotel, you had structure, you had people around you training you, um, and you and you came out the other side better. Like I, mean, I remember at one stage, you know, we were working in at the Sofitel. There was me and George and Scotty Pickett and Gabriel Martin and Shannon Bennett and Gary Megan and you know we were all in that same restaurant. You know what I mean? So you're thinking about the the. the I mean, I'm not blowing wind at my ass, but you think about the the other names, the talent that came out of that place. And it wasn't just a fluke. 
It's because there was really good training institutions that then set up the future for the industry. So I, I'm hopeful that we have an opportunity to start training people again. Now we're in this we're in this vortex of sucking in young, talented staff, whether it's front or back of house, um, getting them up to a level where they're semi-competent and then promoting them straight up to the top because we've just got no talent pool and we and we can probably promote them a little bit cheaper and we can run a little bit leaner, um, but they don't get a chance to fully develop. So w- w- what I'm hopeful for is that this gives us a chance to start training people again. Well, mate, you've been pretty awesome. We could record a whole bloody series with you. Um, <laughs> you've got so much, so much to say, and um, it's bloody fascinating. Uh, congratulations with Providor, and thanks for coming on the show. And um, keep in touch, and we'll talk soon. Done deal. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.